You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 15. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's episode features Gregory Roxon, who is the founder and CEO of M Pharma. You can connect with Greg at Roxon2 and M Pharma Health on Twitter. M Pharma is a digital healthcare company that is helping Africans access high quality medications. And when Greg left for the US to study at university, he wanted to be a doctor. But he quickly realized that he could have a greater impact by studying the business of healthcare on the continent. How often have you gone to a pharmacy which didn't have the drug that you needed? It's a problem that is common across the continent and has a devastating impact on Africans, especially those who have illnesses that require regular treatment. So when you think of diabetes, cancer, or heart disease. And Greg wanted to tackle this problem, hence Mpharma was born. He built an e-prescription platform that would allow seamless communication between doctors and pharmacies so that patients could get their drugs filled on time. But he realized that this was the tip of the iceberg, because the bigger issue in Africa is that Africans can't afford drugs due to high costs. High-quality drugs are expensive, so Greg thought, what if M Pharma bought the drugs using its purchasing power to negotiate better prices from the pharmaceutical manufacturers? Partnering pharmacies could then buy the drugs on consignment, which would save them working capital and lower costs for consumers. Greg has even taken it a step further, developing a product that allows consumers to buy drugs in installments. I love M Pharma, which is incredibly innovative and driving real change in Africa's healthcare space. And don't forget to check out the show notes at yeepodcast.com because Greg has a wealth of information to share about how he innovated, how he developed his business model. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Greg Roxon. Greg, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. I'm thrilled to have you here. Pleasure to join you. So I'd, I'd love to get a sense of your childhood growing up in Tema, Ghana, um, which isn't too far from Accra, the capital. And tell us a story about a typical activity that you did with your parents that really typified your formative years from maybe ages 10 to 16. Sure. So I grew up in a, a very teacher-centered household. My mom was a teacher. My sister is a teacher. My brother was a teacher. And so we didn't really have a lot to do but study <laughs> um, um, growing up. And one of the things that I loved to do was conduct these you know, mini science experiments. I remember one of the things that was very like 
drew my interest in science and medicine was in um, middle school. You know, we had this annual science fair in the school district. So in that year, I, I worked with my mom to create a a fake volcano. It's probably maybe eight or was like seven. And that experiment took second place in the district competition. And just looking at like all the like activities that were being created by all these other young people, I was like, wow, like this is something that I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And with that, I just literally had my mom um, work with me in just getting like science books. And since then, I just was in the science track all my life until college. Um, and I think that has been extremely formative for me, particularly you know, having my mom, who was a teacher, make sure that like education was not uh, something that we joked with. Right. And your, your father, I found it very interesting that your father was a UN peacekeeper. Yes, my father was in the, uh, the Ghana Army um, and also um, was on a number of peacekeeping missions around the world. And how did that kind of influence your childhood, having your father kind of this very unique job of being a UN peacekeeper? So by the time I was born, my dad was no longer in the military. So I didn't really see much of that. Mostly my siblings did see that growing up. However, my sister also got married to a, 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 an army officer who was also a UN peacekeeper. So I think I lived, I lived through my father, through my sister's late husband, who was also a UN peacekeeper. So if I, was, I think the two defining traits in my family is that I come from a, a family of soldiers and teachers. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay. Y- you left for the U.S. to study when you were 16, and when you first started college, you wanted to be a doctor, but later switched to, to study politics. And why did you change? Yeah. So I left when I was 17. And um, my whole, like, my job had been, to, my goal had been to work in medicine as a medical doctor. In fact, you know, I had this sort of dream as a kid that I would be the first person to find the cure for HIV AIDS. And I would spend hours when I first got access to the internet, just Googling any sort of information I, w- I could find um, on, on, on the disease and what progress was being made to find the cure. So throughout high school, I did science. You know, in Ghana, you have to pick a track, a, 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 an education track that you stick to for the rest of your life. So I, I did science, which automatically meant I had to go continue um, in the science for the university. However, when I got to the U.S., and I was pre-med in my first uh, first uh, uh, year, I realized that two things. One was more opportunistic. I wanted to come up with a clever way to pay for my college education. Doing pre-med would have required me to spend all my four years on campus. However, I found out that if I could take a course that would allow me to study in, a, in a different universities in the world, I could get scholarships from those universities to study on their campus. So I switched to allow me to actually study in different universities so that I could get scholarships to pay for the remaining three years of my education. So that was one be more opportunistic. And second was that, you know, as I spent more time uh, in the medical field, whilst I still love healthcare, I was no longer interested in the clinical side of healthcare. 
I was more interested in the business side of healthcare. Because for me, the critical goal was not to simply just practice medicine, but was to think about how you actually increase the pool to ensure that more and more people can actually gain meaningful access to healthcare. And that required innovating around the business side of healthcare delivery, which is what became more of my interest in my second year in college. And I thought it was interesting because you... By, by the time you were studying in the U.S. and, you know, you were pre-med, it was the time that the U.S. was negotiating health care reform, Obamacare. Kind of what was – I mean, I'm just curious. You know, I'm American. So what, what, was your, what was your impression on this public, sometimes very bitter debate on health care reform? Yeah. So it was my first introduction to U.S. politics, <laughs> no, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and, um, a, and a very kind of an introduction to how dysfunctional it can be. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and also coming, f- and coming from a country, a poor country compared to the U.S., that was doing everything possible to provide universal health coverage through the, the government to every citizen in Ghana. I was quite surprised that the most you know, prosperous nation in the world you know, some of the debate about you know, whether healthcare was a right or not. It was a, it was a bit confusing for me. And in Ghana, you know, our, our you know our national health insurance system provides universal health coverage to close to more than fifty percent of the population, right? And that's Ghana being you know a developing country, right? Mm. Limited resources, so that piqued my interest, and I decided to sort of be involved in the debate through grassroots activism. I joined a group called Young Invincibles that was focused on getting young people involved in the debate. You know, in my small town, um, you know, college in Fulton, Missouri, began organizing a lot of um, activities. And I think one of the cornerstones of, 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 of this was bringing together the majority leader and the minority leader of the Missouri State House to come and have a debate on campus on healthcare reforms. And this was me, a student from Ghana. It was kind of weird. Like, it was like, why are you even interested in this? This is not even your country. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, <laughs> but through that work, I, know I, I was noticed by the uh, Center for American Progress, which is one of the you know, leading um, you know, progressive and liberal think tanks in the U.S., which pretty much... The, the policy, you know, you know, bedrock for the Obama administration, and I, um, I was hired to work at the at the at the think tank uh, because of the work that I had done during the Obamacare debate. So it was a really fun period for me, and you know, I got hooked on on American politics through that experience. Wow, that's a great story. I love that. And d- tell us the story of how you came to found M Pharma. Sure. As I'd mentioned, so after I got the permission to study in different universities in the world, I spent my final year in Copenhagen um, as a Rotary Scholar at the University of uh, Copenhagen. And after a year, I moved back to the U.S. to finish my final semester. But, you know, after I spent uh, almost two and a half years you know, outside Fulton, Missouri, it is hard to go back to Fulton, Missouri. <laughs> so, uh, I can imagine. I, yeah. So I got a waiver from my college to actually spend that final semester in San Francisco. Because whilst in Copenhagen, you know, it was 2012, the heydays of Twitter, Uber just coming up. Um, and I was very fascinated by this like city in America called you know, San Francisco, where all these companies were being built. 
So I was like, I got to just go figure out what is going on there. Uh, so I used my final semester to move to San Francisco. No, I, I, worked, I moved there to actually do an internship at another think tank. So I was actually never in tech, really. I was always on the policy side. And while I was there, my friendship group was mostly in the tech sector. Um, and I was like, wow, like I have to go back home to actually use the learnings and contact that I had built to actually start something. I was also inspired by the Alibaba IPO, where almost every American was like, what is Alibaba? Like, where is this coming from? From when it's IPO. And for me, looking back at the fact that in you know, 1996, when you know, Jack Ma started Alibaba, I realized that I wanted to be a part of that story 15 years from now, when the next African you know, companies begin to have their own IPOs. I would, it, would, I would, it would have hurt me to have not moved back to create something in 15 years, look at these companies come up um, and regret not doing that. So that's the first interest, right, moving back home. But particularly with healthcare, my background had always been in healthcare. And whilst in San Francisco, um, there was this you know, article, investigative article that CNN published. And I remember very, that around 7 a.m., I remember that day a lot because I was in a, a Starbucks mm-hmm. when a friend uh, sent me a link to this article, asking me to read. And in this article, there was a, one of the largest uh, generic drug companies in the world called Rambaxi at that time. It's an Indian generic drug company. It's one of the largest suppliers of generic Lipitor in the U.S., but it's one of the largest suppliers of antiretroviral drugs um, in Africa. Um, and in that article, um, it had been uncovered that Rambaxi was not using the full active ingredients in the antiretroviral drug they were manufacturing. And in the conversation between one of the senior quality assurance managers and one of the uh, commercial executives, um, you know, the quality assurance executive brought that up to uh, the commercial executive's notice. Um, and the executive said, which was the phrase that really got me angry and actually pushed the button for me to come back and build something in the healthcare space in Africa. The executive said when the issue of you know, the you know, quality of the drugs was brought up that no, it is Africa. It is just black people dying. No one cares. Oh, my God. And I was angry, not so much about other executive, but I was angry at myself and government regulators in, in, in Africa for giving people the license to say this about us. And that got me motivated to build something in the pharma industry. It's more of like a righteous cause for me. Right. And that seems very reflective of your personality that you very much seem like an activist and you're not just going to sit on the sidelines. You want to do something. Exactly. M Pharma has a fascinating business model or just like a very interesting backstory because when it first started out, you started it as an e-prescription service. So you wanted to set up a a platform, a digital platform where doctors could write a prescription and they knew at in real time what pharmacies, you know, had certain drugs in their stocks and they could communicate with, with pharmacies, kind of with, with the inventory providers. And, but you eventually went beyond that because you realized that the underlying problem in, in a country like Ghana was high drug costs. So explain to us a bit this this transition. Sure. So as you rightly mentioned, we started M- M- Pharma purely as an electronic prescription platform. 
know, our simple thesis was sort of digitizing the information flow in prescription management to make it easy to identify where drugs are and to cut down the I'll say, information lag where a paper prescription is issued to a patient. And that is the end of the communication between the prescriber and the patient. So that's what we started uh, working on. We built you know, the prescription software developed, deployed in, in Zambia, in Ghana. We teamed up with Orange, Orange Telecom to also roll out in Cote d'Ivoire. And whilst doing this, one of the things that was really interesting for us all the, uh, from the beginning was the power of the data that we'll, we'll be collecting from a utilization standpoint to really understand and map medicine use in the uh, countries that we were working in. And as this data flow began, one thing that became sort of obvious to us was that a lot of facilities that we were setting up the software in, you know, tend to run out of stock quite often due to the fact that they lack the you know, economy of scale to be able to negotiate pricing effectively, but also the capital to be able to acquire inventory um, in the right quantities at the right price so that they could price it much more efficiently uh, to patients. And to us, it made no sense just sending prescription to pharmacies if they could not guarantee uh, their own stock rate, stock fill rate. So that led us to think about how we could use that data to actually work in partnership with uh, these pharmacies to actually guarantee the availability of medicines at a lower price for patients that actually visited them uh, to have their drug dispensed. That is how M Pharma evolved from just building prescription software to actually now being an inventory manager across healthcare facilities in the markets we work. Well, and what's fascinating is that you're kind of using your purchasing scale to, well, as you said, to negotiate better prices with the pharmaceutical manufacturers and that pharmacies don't need the working capital. They can buy the drugs on consignment from you and you and they, they pay you, they pay M Pharma back after they've been sold to um, to to the customer exactly. So for us, we think about sort of the shared economy that was pioneered by the likes of Uber and Airbnb, right? Now today, Airbnb is the world's largest hotel business without necessarily opening any single hotel. You know, Uber being the world's largest transportation company without opening buying its own fleet of vehicles. What we realized is that to increase medicine access in the markets that we work in. The problem is not a lack of actual physical stores, right? There are a lot of pharmacies dotted across the countries that we work in. The problem is the lack of inventory in those physical stores when patients walk in. And we realized we could work in collaboration with these physical pharmacy stores and owners to actually create our own sort of retail innovation in the pharmaceutical industry, whereby instead of us trying to create our own pharmacies to compete against these existing mom and pop pharmacies, right? We could actually work with them to strengthen their business and in so doing, create an economic model that ensures that both of us are financially successful if it works out. 
which is a really great model because it allows us to actually support uh, the livelihood of healthcare professionals um, in the markets that we work in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you very quickly got backing from major pharmaceutical manufacturers who became clients. So very early, you worked on you worked with Pfizer, Novartis, and Roche. Uh, are you working with any other manufacturers right now? We have a couple in the pipeline that will be announced. Oh, fantastic. What's so interesting is that cultivating, having this data on pharmaceutical use, this is like a dream to pharmaceutical sales professionals because now they know okay, exactly what is demand, what is data on use, on the filling of these prescriptions, on the use, kind of what have been the most interesting insights into pharmaceutical use in some of your major markets that that really surprised you? I think one of the things that we are very careful to do is is make sure that we are great custodians of the data that goes through us. So we use the data mainly to improve the efficiency of the businesses that we work in. Right, so improving the supply chain, ensuring that we are cutting out stock out rates. We're using that to find the best products and stocking the best products across our network so that it doesn't seem that we are just you know, collectors of data and, 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 and abusing that data. So, so that's what I just put that out. So we, we focus solely on information internally to just make the businesses that we manage inventory at more better and more efficient and help increase their own profits. Now, on the insights, I, w- I wouldn't say something that surprised me, but more or less sort of reaffirmed sort of a global concern as the uh, use of antibiotics. It shocked me to see the amount of antibiotic consumption across our network, which speaks to the global concern of potential antimicrobial resistance because of the over-reliance on on antibiotics globally, but also in Africa. And I think being able to sort of visualize this sort of this problem in a way through the work that we've been doing has just been insightful and internally has led us to start thinking you know, what do we do to actually leverage this insights to begin to create much more targeted awareness on antimicrobial resistance in the markets that we work in? Oh, wow. That's, that's powerful. I mean, because even anecdotally, I have the impression that local physicians in, for example, Abidjan, where I live, definitely overprescribe antibiotics. And like you said, this is a global phenomenon. It's a problem everywhere. But it definitely seems like, oh... You you have a cold. Here's here's an antibiotic, which is definitely a problem over the long term. And it's difficult because you know infections are one of the most common conditions that most of us get. And if we reach a point where you know, antibiotics are not working, they become so resistant to the current crop of antibiotics that are being manufactured, then we are in serious trouble globally. One of the things that I really, as an grows, is to think about how we are able to create much more targeted. Um, response. I remember having a conversation with one of the world's largest manufacturers of antibiotics. And one of the ideas we discussed was since we can pinpoint exactly in, in which cities are the antibiotics that are being used in which particular locations, one of the ideas that discussed was having bringing together research scientists and microbiologists who could begin to collect resistance data or the different antibiotics that are being used in a particular location, and then 
if there is they identify that there's a high resistance towards a particular antibiotic, if a physician wants to actually prescribe that actual antibiotic, we could actually interfere directly and let them know what the resistance level for that uh, antibiotic is in that particular location, since we have that information of what antibiotic is being used in those locations. And the idea was that by being able to stage interventions in real time, we could actually begin to educate and create awareness among physicians on what type of antibiotics to use so as not to uh, continue to increase the resistance levels in those particular locations. Oh, wow. That's a powerful example of using your treasure trove of data to do something proactive. Exactly. And you participated in the Alchemist Accelerator. Is it based in Silicon Valley? It based San Francisco? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In, in 2015. And I'd love to know, what were your major takeaways from that experience? Yeah. So you know, when we started building the Pharma, we were very fortunate that even before we raised venture capital, you know, we had customers. You know, so Pfizer was like one of our first big enterprise customer. And that was like validation for us that we could actually build a business that uh, could actually generate revenue. But as we had to scale the business, we had to raise money. And I'm sure from your interviews with other entrepreneurs, one of the occurring theme is a difficulty in raising money locally. What we realized we had to do was to, even though we're building the business in Africa, the money that we had to raise would not actually come locally. So we had to go to where the money was, which was the which was Silicon Valley. But you know, not, not even though I'd left there for a year uh, before moving to Ghana to start M Pharma, I wasn't very integrated into the whole venture capital scene in the Bay Area. So for us, join an incubator would be our introduction to that side of the industry, right? Because, you know, the Bay Area works well on this trust economy where having a strong reference is always great. Um, uh, social proof. Yeah. And, and you, know, you know, particularly if you're coming from a country in Africa, right, where really no one really you know, thinks a lot about. So joining the incubator and spending six months in the incubator allowed us to establish our own social in the Bay Area. And for me, the big takeaway was really about that people invest in people they trust and the business actually counts second particularly in the early stages where you're raising a seed round or even a series a right and without having that presence in the bay area it makes it harder to actually raise any form of capital and that is what i took away from the alchemist experience that getting that presence was critical to the success of the entrepreneur in africa trying to raise money in the bay okay and besides participating in the accelerator to kind of serve as a launch pad to give your to give you and your company credibility what were other ways you established trust when i was talking about the business so in the early days even though we're in the incubator it wasn't really easy for us uh because when i had to split my time between you know, spending time in Ghana, Nigeria, and the Bay Area. I remember, you know, we would meet with the investors, and every investor would say, you know, this is great. But, you know, when we think about emerging markets, the farthest will go is India. So if you want to, like, move the business to India, we'll invest in you, right? We actually think this is needed in India. And my answer would always be, India is great. We want to go there one day, but Africa is where we want to start. And so it wasn't easy in the beginning. I think what helped was that, we had already begun having major pharma companies as clients, right? So Pfizer, Novartis. And that 
having those big name customers also even made it people believe that there was something there. It wasn't just an idea, right? It was something that you had some of the world's largest drug companies actually paying, which if any Silicon Valley startup had as a client on their client roster, they would have been the darling of the industry, right? So that helped us a lot. Right, yeah, and that makes sense. And you've said before as well that kind of a huge challenge for an African entrepreneur is to convince uh, an investor that... Africa is worth investing in over the long term because they're always thinking about where can they put their capital to get the best return. And you have to make the argument that there's a huge commercial opportunity in sub-Saharan Africa. And this has always been on the forefront of your mind, I imagine. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, in 2018, that has changed a lot. You know, U.S. investors are actually back in. Um, a number of um, African companies. By 2015, we were going, and the economies in Africa were not doing well. You know, Nigeria was about to go through a huge, you know, uh, recession. Ghana was going through currency issues. To actually make that case, um, 2014, 2015, uh, when the economies in Africa were not doing well because of the, the, the crash in commodity prices. So it was tougher, but what helped us really was just finding the one believer in me, really, as a person, but also believing that our early success with a number of big pharma companies showed that we had a tenacity and drive to keep working at it. And, and that helped. Okay, that one believer, was it Shamath Palihapitiya of Social Capital, or are you referring to someone else? So I'm referring to Social Capital as a firm. So before I even met Chama, um, I would say there was one person that was very instrumental in our ability to raise money in, in the Bay Area. And it was it's a partner at Social Capital called Ashley Carroll. So at The Alchemist, during our demo day, I'd gone to, met so many investors who had all said, this is a great idea, great traction, but we don't think we're comfortable doing anything in Africa yet. So I had really given up on the idea of being able to raise money in the Bay Area, which was disappointing after, you know, going through a six-month immersion program in the Bay Area. But I still went to demo day to uh, present. Whilst at demo day, after my presentation, I got an email from someone in the audience, you know, talking about how she loved the idea and that we should get together uh, after the demo day. So, you know, I ended up just spending the rest of the evening talking to Ashley about the business, you know, what we're creating. And at the end of the conversation, she actually asked me to come meet the founder of her firm, which she told me was social capital. So that was when I'd gone, that was about a month later, I went into meet Chamar. Um, at that time, Ashley had done a lot of the work, uh, making a case to the firm. So when I met with Chamar, you know, it was more about, him getting to know me and seeing if this was the first deal in Africa, he wanted his firm to back. And 30 minutes into our meeting, he stood up and said, I will back, we're going to do this deal. And we'll invest everything that you need. Just tell me how much you need. And that is how that deal came into place. Wow, that's a great story. It's just like you said, that one believer who saw the potential of your idea. And what was interesting about that is that the moment that happened, every single investor that said no came back to us and said they were interested. Another thing I learned, you know, uh, through that experience was that there's a big head mentality with investors. A lot of investors think they have original 
ideas, but the truth is that few, only few have original ideas or original interests. Most of them just also look for social proof from other investors that they trust um, as their main barometer for deciding whether to back a company or not. And so if you ever raise money from Sequoia or Benchmark, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to raise money from any other investor in the world because yeah. those investors come with massive social proof. Right. I've heard the similar criticism, or not, not criticism, it's just an observation really, that venture capitalists really take little risk that they often, they don't have the mandate to be the lead investor. And like you said, they're looking for someone else to take the jump, to really see the potential, and then they follow. But yeah, it's, it's, it seems pretty frustrating. Yes. There are just a few investors that have high conviction about the business that they, they work in and would go against the trend to back businesses that fit that thesis that they have. But most most, in my opinion, just go along with the head mentality, which for me, the, the other key learning was you, all, you only need one yes to turn back all the no's you receive. It's always the hardest thing is then that first yes from a repeatable investor. That is, that is like the hardest. Once you get the first yes, everything falls in line. Right. Yeah. And to get to that first yes, you have to knock on a lot of doors. You have to hear a lot of no's. Yes. And, and last year, you raised your Series A funding worth, um, well, over $6 million. And, and that, that funding was led by Chavrin Barty Mittel of the, the Mittel family, who founded the mobile operator Airtel. Also famed VC investor Jim Breyer participated. It was his first investment in an African tech company. So this, this, this was a huge deal. Um, and... First of all, how, how do you plan to, to invest that money? So we remain focused on our original thesis, which is to continue to work and empower existing healthcare providers in the markets that we work in, eliminate stockouts um, in their pharmacies, and allow them to move their own business through uh, freeing up their, the cash that they that is trapped in the inventory. So we continue to do that. So we are we are growing, we're adding more hospitals on our network. We currently manage a network of over 120 healthcare providers in the markets that we work in, over 25,000 patients each month. So we want to continue to invest in growing up that network, uh, right? And having more and more pharmacies and hospitals benefit from, um, from our vendor managed inventory service. Um, so that's step one. The second step for us is beginning to um, invest in more patient financing solutions. We are currently in the process of piloting the world's first you know, you know, credit wallet for medicine procurement uh, that enables patients to get their drugs on credit and then pay over time, called Muti. And you know, our really in- interest in building Muti you know, came from a lot of the data that we're collecting on the prescription beha- uh, dispensation behavior of patients across our hospital network. No one ever plans to fall sick. But once you fall sick, you have an immediate cost that you have to incur. And in the markets that we work in, with an, an overwhelming majority of patients having to pay out of pocket for their medicines, the biggest barrier that prevents patients from starting treatment and staying on treatment is the initial financial cost that they need to incur before their medicines can be dispensed to them, right? If you are a breast cancer patient, if you have skull cancer, and you are diagnosed, you don't have the luxury to say, I'm going to wait, save enough money 
and they want to have enough money, I'll come and start treatment. Because by the time you actually save enough money to start treatment, your condition would have deteriorated. So in looking at the market and the patient behavior that we're with medicine, we started working on an idea with a number of drug companies, similar to what we see in other consumer retail businesses, where today you can walk into an Apple store and get an iPhone and not have to actually pay the full price. You get a 24-month payment plan from Apple, interest-free, to pay for your iPhone or even any other big-ticket um, item with electronics. We realized that if we could begin to see drugs, but not just as medical products, but also as financial products, we can begin to create an entire credit system that enables patients to start treatment without having to worry about having enough money immediately to make payments, particularly for specialty diseases like cancer, heart failure. So we've been rolling out pilots in this system in Ghana and Nigeria. And I'm super excited about that because for me, it fundamentally changes the way out-of-pocket patients actually pay for their medicine without them having to worry about, do I have money now to start treatment? And I'm pretty excited about that. And we are going to devote a lot of resources in testing that system and gradually rolling that across all our healthcare provider. Well, and, and how many of your patients who are part, who use M-Pharma ultimately, are paying out of pocket versus having insurance? I'd say about 90%. Oh, wow. Yeah. It just shows that, yeah, insurance penetration is just still in its infancy. Exactly. What have been the tangible results of lower drug costs from, from M-Pharma? So the two things that we've seen through one, our insured business, insurance business, is health insurers being able to actually include more drugs into their coverage list, right? Because by lowering the reimbursement costs, they're able to cover more drugs and patients um, are able to extend their insurance benefits for a longer period. Instead of having to run out within a couple of months of their, their annual plan. So that's been a, a great benefit to um, insured patients. And for out-of-pocket patients, because of the skill that we are building from a patient standpoint, drug prices are lower in our network compared to the same products in providers that are out of our network. We did a project with Novartis in Ghana where we built a drug formulary for some of their cardiovascular uh, products um, in one of our hospitals that was not dispensing any single Novartis medication uh, because of the cost. We were able to cut down the cost by 40% in that hospital. Mm -hmm. And in seven months, that hospital went from zero patients on treatment to over 700 patients. Oh my God, on that's incredible. And what is important about that is that these are medications that have a higher uh, success rate, right? Than the other sort of options that they were currently on. Right? So not only are we able to bring down the cost, by bringing down the cost, it actually help patients. Look, it's like upgrading from like economy to business class. right? So if all yeah. I could afford was sort of a lower cost medication, even though I needed maybe a much more high-end medication that would fit my um, uh, condition better, uh, by lowering the cost, I could actually upgrade to that medication. That's what we saw happen um, in, in, in our hospital, that first hospital with Novartis. And a lot of those patients were patients who were on existing medications, but their blood pressure or their sugar levels were not under control. And they've been able to switch to the medications produced by Novartis 
just had a direct change in their health outcome. Um, and that for me is the key benefit. Lowering drug costs is not only about making it financially accessible, but it's also about being able to enable patients move into products that are actually better suited to their healthcare needs. Uh, to help them manage their own health outcomes. Yeah, and that seems very reflective of your ethos, of your mantra of focus on the patient. Yes. Okay, and well, in the last 10 minutes, yeah, five to 10 minutes of our chat, I want to ask you some more general questions about entrepreneurship. You're quite a reader. I, I have the impression that you're quite a reader, Greg, probably when you have the time to read. And, and I'd love to know, what were a couple books that left an impression on you in the last year? Sure, I do read a lot. Um, I read, uh, yeah, I always have a, my book of the month that I read. I think as an entrepreneur, it's always like inspiring for me to follow the stories of other entrepreneurs uh, who've gone through the same battles and fights and have come up on top. Uh, so it's a number of books that I would actually encourage, it's been great for me, was The Everything Store by Brad Stone about the rise of Amazon. In fact, Jeff Bezos is one of my mentors. Uh, I don't know him, but I... I think Amazon is one of the most important companies that has been built in our generation. An online bookstore to becoming you know, the everything store has been a phenomenal growth. And I hope to one day build a company in the image of Amazon here in Africa. So the everything store is a great book. Another book that I really enjoyed reading was uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Oh, about, right. um, I think it's also uh, phenomenal. Um, and the final book, which I'll, uh, I'll, I'll encourage, is Principles by Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater. It's one of the most um, successful hedge funds. I think those three books have been really um, inspirational um, and thought-provoking from being able to sort of track my own journey um, by looking at the journeys of you know, other entrepreneurs that have built and come up on top of their uh, industries. Hmm. No, I just bought a copy of Ray Dalio's Principles. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if you could take a, a year-long sabbatical anywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? Wow, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I told them the world's worst person on taking breaks. Um, <laughs> so, and if I did take a break, I'll probably hold myself in my apartments in Ghana and just like sleep. Uh, I imagine. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if I could actually do that, I would actually go to Livingston in Zambia. Hmm. Um, I took my first trip to Livingston a couple of years ago when I you know, tried to build an M-Pharma in Zambia and I fell in love with, um, with the Victoria Falls and just fell in love with a small town nature. Of Livingston. For me, I've never been a fan of big cities. So, like, being in small towns uh, or big towns that have the feeling of a small town, it's more relaxing for me from the mind perspective. So I like to think a lot. And I think I would love to take one year just spending time in Livingston, doing uh, going on morning treks in, in, in Big Falls and just being able to just think. Mm. Uh, about what next. To close our conversation, I'd love to know if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur. What would it be? That's tough because I'm still in my own journey and I'm learning. Uh, I probably should ask that advice from other people. <laughs> <laughs> As an entrepreneur, you know your business better 
than anyone else knows it. And it is easy to get swayed into different directions because people will portray themselves as knowing more than you. If you have high conviction in your idea and believe that there's no other thing in the world you will do than fix that problem, so you have no plan B, do not give up, regardless of the troubles you face. Because the best kind of entrepreneurs that do not have plan Bs. You only have one option, one plan, and if you lose, you lose everything. And if you see the idea you're working on to fit that bucket, then you actually end up coming on top if you persevere and don't give up. That's great advice. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you very much, Victoria. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcasts. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.